You're listening to a message from the church at Rutledge. For more information about TCAR, please visit thechurchatrutledge.org. Good morning. Welcome to TCAR and the service today. Glad you're here with us. And we started a series last Sunday and wasn't last Sunday wonderful? That was just, I really enjoyed last Sunday and Easter and then celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and talking about that. It was really good. Thank you guys for your feedback about the service and even what we learned last week. But uh, we started a series, this I know, and in case you missed that one, it's okay um, because today will make sense all by itself. But we're exploring some really big questions Some of them are kind of new questions that people are asking these days instead of some old, more classical type questions that people ask about faith and about God. But we started last week talking about the foundation of our faith and the historical proof of the resurrection of Christ and what that means. Um, But everybody has questions. I mean, just to get honest, I have questions. I I have things that I go, I don't really understand that. I, I have questions about... Um, the Bible and faith and God and so on. There's some things I don't, I, I still have questions about, but I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and believe the Bible to be true, but yet there are still some things I don't know, okay? Big surprise, right? I just let a lot of you down. You're like, oh, I thought he knew everything. It's okay. It's okay. I, I don't, okay? Um but I do have my faith in Christ and I can look at the Word and I, I try to understand what I can understand. And I realize that even the Bible tells us that there's some things we're just not going to figure out. Okay, We're going to have questions. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Right? So there, it's saying that first half is saying there's, there's some things we're not going to figure out and we're not going to know and it'll be okay. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. It's saying, but yet there's some things that God has revealed to us. He's given us his word, his, his, the Bible and his, his revelation of, his, of himself through Jesus Christ. We have that. And so there's things we can know about him. These revealed things. Given, he's given us enough to know Him. He's given us enough to have a relationship with Him. He's given us enough to, to have a life of joy and enjoyment even in the midst of those questions. Okay? There are so many questions, though, that people still have. And I think that's great. It keeps us pressing toward Him, wanting to know more instead of, well, I know everything, so I'll just go do something else. You know, it's a, it's a thing of we want to know more and more. And that's one of the beautiful things about God is that He's, he's limitless. So there's always more of Him. And, and that's, that's a wonderful thing to, to understand. And it, but yet people do have questions. I remember one time going to Honduras and go fly all the way down there and we met a family running a, a gift shop in a hotel there at the Marriott in, in, the, in the capital city. Um, met this, this brother and sister that's from uh, New Orleans, from Louisiana, okay? So here I get down there, and God has sent me all the way to Honduras to talk to people from New Orleans, okay? 
that's how he works sometimes, though. But we end up spending two days with the sister, me and, a, and, and uh, another guy. We were going out to see her brother David on an island in the Gulf. And I know this all sounds crazy, but it's what happens when you go to Honduras. But we, we end up going out there to see her brother, and he never materializes. And so like Christina, this lady, she would say, well, hey, meet me at so-and-so uh, restaurant, and I'll bring David, I'll bring my husband, I'll bring my son, and we'll all have dinner together. And she would show up by herself and say they couldn't come, and then she would ask question after question after question after question. And we would sit for two or three hours, and her asking questions about all kinds of things from science and evolution uh is the Bible really true? Does God really exist? To, to what about hypocrisy and things that uh, happen even with Christians and things I see in churches? And uh, a lot of those are some of the more classical questions. But then we would we would spend two and three hours at a time with just I felt like I went through every sermon and every book of the Bible uh, and everything I know in like two days with her, and and it was just question and question and question, and it was amazing, but. There, there are those questions, and then it's um, the ch the questions are kind of changing these days. As we talked about um, Generation Z, and I addressed that a few weeks ago about how culture's changing drastically, like we've never seen before here, and the generation that's coming up that will be a third of our population before too long. But these days, it's it's more like if God exists, if He really exists, um, and they don't question His existence, most people today are not in the atheist category. Most people, I know our world, it seems like people are, because it seems like it's the loudest voice, but there's more doctors and, and so forth that believe there is a God than doesn't, okay? Not, most people aren't like, questioning his existence but if they're questioning if God exists then who is he and what kind of God is he they're, they're more in that category and 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 so what seems to be happening is most people who reject the existence of God who would say that don't really reject the idea there is a God they reject they're just simply rejecting what they perceive to know about God more specifically, they reject what they think they know about the Bible and what it says about him, about who he is and his character and his personality. They, they, they have that thinking of, hey, if that's God, hey, hey Christians, hey, hey, people that believe the Bible, these things I hear, if that's God and, and, and their perceptions become judgmental, homophobic, all this stuff, if that's God, then I don't believe in that God. So I'm just going to reject the existence of God because if that's who you're saying God is, then I don't believe He exists. It's more that line of thinking than just a, a, an outright, I just don't believe God exists, period. They think it's more about who He is and His character and His personality than it is about evidence of existence. They think if... If that's what God's like, if God would do that, if I, re if I see these stories in the Old Testament um, you know, where Abraham's told to sacrifice his son, if I, if I see things in the Old Testament that I go, 
if that's what God is like, then I don't believe in that God. I may believe in God, but not the God of the Bible. And God sometimes does some things in the Bible, we would have to admit, that we look at and go, I, I, I just don't see how God would do that. Why would He do that? Why would He have to do that? And, and, and it makes Him seem like He's extremely harsh and uncaring and, and even evil sometimes if you just take little pieces out of context from the Bible and don't really understand what's going on as a whole. And, and it makes... It, 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 may seem like believing God can't even be right if he would do some of those things. It makes it seem like who would want to worship or praise or follow him if he's that way, right? Who would want to do that? Like, And it's very confusing, and we'll get into it in a minute. I was thinking about the song we are singing at the, at the beginning, the lion and the lamb, and we see that in the scriptures. Is it two different gods we're talking about? Or do both of those exist at one time? That becomes a, a thought because most people just go, well, he's, he's this lion that just, just, he's mean sometimes. But then Jesus is this wonderful lamb, right? Is there two different gods of the Bible? Like, what, why would, and then, and then there's those questions about him, like, why would God create hell, much less send anybody there if he's good? And all the rules and things that seem to just cut against our culture, and I almost started to say against our nature, but that that becomes too obvious, and some people can twist that and take it wrong as though, well, our nature is right, but our nature is sinful, is the way it is. But it seems to cut against our culture, like all these rules about divorce and homosexuality and sex before marriage, and then there's all this suffering in the world. Why is it that way? Why Why do we have all this suffering? I mean, if God is really good... Why doesn't he stop all this pain and suffering and people doing bad to each other and and so forth? <clears throat> Wrong being done to people in the world. Why does he let this keep going like it is? And 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 so people think if that's God, then I just reject that. If if that is the God of the Bible, then I don't believe that. So they just say, so I don't believe there is a God. You see the logic of thinking. It's not because they just come up with a conclusion that God doesn't exist. But eventually, and, and basically, essentially what people are saying in that is, I could do a better job at running the world than God could. Right? We want things to be better. Uh, want them to be perfect because God made us for that with Him in a, in a perfect place for that these things didn't exist, but things got broken because of us. But we long for it to be perfect, so while it's not and we're in this cursed world, there's this feeling of, man, I could do a better job than God could. If, if I was in charge, we wouldn't have wars and drug addiction and suicide and rape and abuse and sickness and depression and starvation and, and, and you know, slavery, homelessness. I mean, just think, go on and on and on with it. Hate and greed. And, and we think we could do a better job because we don't really understand maybe what's going on in the full context of who God is. And it makes the questions run deep in our world today. And when somebody goes to the Bible, it can seem at first glance like God is causing what's going on. And if He's causing that, then He can't be a good God. I mean, that God's calling for blood sacrifices when you when you look at that. And and he's telling people to kill off an entire village, women and children, both. I mean, what's that all about? 
Is God really evil? And then you've got these atheist authors and so forth who have written about the character of God and, and, and the Bible. And one guy, um, one reference I didn't include, um, a guy, there's a guy that wrote a book. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, but he wrote a book called God is Not Great. And he goes into talking about if, if, if the God of the Bible is like this and he pulls pieces out of the Bible and paints this picture of, of a God that's not great. There's another guy, the, probably the leading um, atheist that writes books and all this stuff, a guy named Richard Dawkins. He, he basically called God a moral monster. Okay? And he writes this, Dawkins deems God's commanding Abraham, this is about his writings, to sacrifice Abraham, commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to be disgraceful and tantamount to child abuse and bullying. Isn't that nice? Okay. Moreover, this God breaks into a monumental rage whenever his chosen people flirt with a rival God, resembling nothing so much as sexual jealousy of the worst kind. And to this, the killing of the Canaanites, he calls it an ethnic cleansing in which bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish. Joshua's destruction of Jericho is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. And that's the picture he paints, right? So, so you look at that and you go, well, you know, you think about that. Is that, is that correct? Is it true that God is a moral monster? When you read about harsh punishment and the call for sacrifice, don't even touch the Ark of the Covenant or you fall over dead. God strikes you dead right then. You know, it's, which is, it's all in the Bible. Are we dealing with a good and loving God or do we just reject the Bible and just call it fiction and God couldn't exist that way? But when we read the Bible, do, what do the actions of God really mean? Okay. That becomes the issue. Um, so to understand the God of the Bible, it, it's good as we get into all these questions. And I would encourage you and, and others, um, I'd love for you to send in questions. You can email me. And, and there's some stuff I'd love to, even if it's just a at the beginning of every service, there's a five-minute deal of just answering quick questions that we don't address in this. If you have those, send them to me. Um, but... We gotta start with this foundation of just understanding the Bible and how it's laid out so we can begin to get an understanding of the context of it and go, is this, how does this really play out? And answer that question of, is this really true? You've got a God you can't trust. Is it, is it really that way? So to understand this, you got, you got basically you look at the, when you look at the Bible, you got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. And that's where you get that lion and lamb thinking because people like to portray God differently in each of the Testaments, okay? Uh, and it's the Old Testament where a lot of questions are raised about God's wrath and harsh punishments. And then there's the New Testament part of the Bible which seems to be different with Jesus and he's this God of mercy and forgiveness and he's healing people and people want to just be around him and party with him and it's just great, right? Are we dealing with two different gods? Is there the God of the Ten Commandments and then there's the God of Jesus Christ who, who just, who's God who just loves everyone. Is there a war? Is there this God of war and judgment and wrath and rules? And then there's another one that's a God of mercy and love and grace. 
Is that really true? Well, let's get an understanding uh, further um, about God's character. And you have to understand, like I said, how this lays out of the Old Testament. And testament is just this word that means um, the, the more literal translation of it would be um, last will. It, it, it's this, it's, but it literally gets into uh, where we derive to get the word covenant. Okay? So it's covenant. It's agreement. It is, it's God's promises to us. This is what I'll do if you do this. It's, it's, it's an agreement between two parties and it's God saying, I'll do this and this is what this means for you. It's an agreement between two parties. Um, And what it is, is God's promises to the other party of the covenant, covenant in regards to their relationship to him. Okay. And so why Old Covenant? Okay, why is one part called the Old Covenant, one part called New Covenant or New Testament, Old Testament? It's it's the agreement with God's people, the Old Testament is, before the coming of Christ. Okay, this is the agreement we have, the covenant, and how to have a relationship with me before Christ comes. Okay, thus the Old Testament. Okay. Before the Messiah, it's it's God's instructions or agreement with His people before Jesus about how to be in a relationship with Him before Jesus comes. Okay, so it it laid out how things would go and how it would be, and it was all pointing and building towards the coming of the Messiah and the coming of God Himself in human form to give Himself to save the world. So the New Testament is the new agreement or the new covenant between Himself about. Uh, between himself and us on how to have a relationship with him after Jesus came, okay? Now, now, the old and new kind of throws us off and gets us into a thinking that, that maybe isn't accurate because the new doesn't replace the old, okay? The New Testament is the coming, is, is the coming to pass of what the Old Testament pointed to, okay? So old and new can kind of throw you off a, a little bit, but the Old Testament was saying, when Jesus comes, things will be like this. In the meantime, do these things, but when He comes, it'll be this way. And this is our covenant together, and I'm going to be with you forever, but there'll be a fulfillment of all these things at some point, and this is the way it will be then. Okay? And so Jesus came, and the New Testament says, Jesus came, and now things are this way. So it's just a, a pivot point of looking forward to Jesus and then the New Testament, looking back to Jesus coming and what he did and how things are to be now. So it's the old covenant, new covenant, okay? And, and, and I, I was sitting around, I was like, how do I make an analogy to kind of paint a picture of this? And all I could come up with is, and this may not be the best idea, but I was thinking it's kind of like you're wanting to buy a house, okay? So you go view the house, you do all those things, you make an offer on it, there's an inspection on the home, all those things happen, and this is the way it is before you get the house. But it's you're like, that's the house we want, we're going to have to make these changes to the house, we'd like to you know, revamp the kitchen, do whatever. And so you make an offer, the offer's accepted, then you go to the closing, and it's like all that before you actually own the home is, is, is like the old, it's the old covenant, we're going to buy the house. And then you have the closing on the house and then you get the house and the paperwork's filed a few days later and you own the house and now we're in the house and we live there okay it, it's it's like this it, it, it was it was going to be your house it, it, but it, it 
now it is. It's like before the contract is final and after, okay? It, it's the same agreement. It's the same storyline. It's just before and after an event happened, but, but telling the same story of coming to own this house, okay? I don't know. That's just where I went in my mind. But it, it, it's to say the Old Testament didn't replace, or the New Testament didn't replace the Old Testament. It's not like, well, now all that's gone and it doesn't matter. It, it's not saying that. It's, it's the New Testament is the coming to pass of what the Old Testament said would be. The Old Testament was saying, Jesus comes, it'll be like this. New Testament looks back. And, and so um, that's the New Testament, Old Testament, um, all the same story, two parts. Um, in a, you can even use the language, like I said, of the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, okay? The Old Testament pointing toward things to come, unfolding of God's plan to save the world. The New Testament is the fulfilling of God's plan to save the world. Um, and so all of those prophets in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, just awaited the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the plan. That's, you hear them talk about it all the time. It's the, it's the same story, not two different stories in the Bible. Okay? People often have this view that it's the mad God of the Old Testament and the loving, kind God of the New Testament. That's what you hear, right? So let me ask you this, I mean, in, in regards to that, because basically people are just repeating what they hear, and they're just repeating what they want to hear and want to repeat, not how things really are. So I just, I, I often would just ask people if they get into that, well, this God of the Old Testament, I just can't really buy that. I love Jesus in the New Testament, but not the God of the Old Testament. I just say, well, have you ever read it? Have you literally read the entire thing, the Old Testament and the New Testament? Have you read it? All 39 books of the Old Testament? Did, have you read that? And all the 27 books of the New Testament? Have you studied all 66? And I, and I say study, I mean study. Like, I brought this Bible up here with me today because uh, I just want to show you it's, it's a new one that I got. I used to have several like three different resources I used, and now it's all in this one that my wife got me for Valentine's Day. This this is like stuff I love for 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 gifts. Okay, this is like very romantic to me. Okay, um, and I love it. But it's 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 like, and I'll show you in a minute. And, and when I say study it, I mean really look closely at it and what this really means. And and I love this because all the words in its original language have a reference to what the the Greek or Hebrew have, I know you can't see this from up there, have what they what they literally mean. So I'll talk in a moment about a word, and I'll grab this back out and show you how how I how I study and where I get that from. Uh, because you know pastors get up and say, well, in the Hebrew and the Greek it says this, and they look really smart. It's all right here, okay? It tells you all that stuff. You don't have to go to seminary and study Greek and Hebrew because these days it's right here, okay? Um, so this is a Greek-Hebrew study Bible that has all of it right here. I used to have to have the Strong's Concordance or Dictionary of the Bible, which is on my desk too, that I looked some stuff up still, but, but it, it's, it's, all in, it's all in here. It's like ragu, okay? Um, but it, 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 it's a, that's how I do it. So I just go, have you read the whole thing? Have you, have you looked at it and really studied it to understand it in context 
And if you did, if you did that, you can't walk away, if you read it, seeing two different gods. It, it, there's just no way if you read it. Um, if you did, is that, did, did you walk away that way or is it just your perception of what you've been told? Most people, heavy on the most, most people who have read the whole Bible don't believe there is two gods. It's one, not two personalities at all. And, and, and it, I, you know, as I've read it, I don't see two different characters, two different gods at all. In fact, the continuity of the Old Testament to the New Testament are astoundingly amazing and, and consistent of who God is. You find the same God all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. In, in Jesus, you see the God of the Old Testament when you look at Jesus, right? And, and, and he, in God the Father is seen Jesus. I mean, even Jesus himself would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, when you read it, you come to understand they're the same and, and they have the same character, okay? He would literally say that himself. We're the same. And, and the Jesus of the New Testament is, is no more loving than God the Father, okay? And God the Father of the Old Testament is no more judging than Jesus when you read it. I mean, especially when you read it and you see Jesus call out, especially the religious leaders and Pharisees and hypocrites. And I mean, he was just as harsh on them as anybody in the Old Testament. But if you pick out the clips you want to present, you pick out the verses and take them out of context, you can basically paint God any way you want to paint him if you just just want to say certain verses or pick out certain things out of context. But there's amazing love and mercy in the Old Testament to the point of being really overboard and too forgiving sometimes. I mean, really, if you read it, God in the Old Testament pursues and pursues and pursues His people and, and relents over and over and over in the face of disobedience and rebellion and sin and ungratefulness and just neglect of, of who He is and their relationship with Him. You just see that see people do it over and over and over, and God is very patient. Yeah, there's times He just finally goes, well, we just kind of got to do a reset here. But such a bent in the Old Testament of God toward mercy. If you read it, you'll see it over and over and over. Even when people would betray Him and hurt Him. And the, there's a writer, Philip Yancey, who would say, it's like a parent who finds, I'm not going to quote it directly, but this is my paraphrase. It's like a parent who finds a, a child in a ditch, a little girl, and, and they're near death, and he, he takes that child home and cleans her up and puts clothes on her and feeds her and adorns her with jewelry and, and, and really goes all out for her, and, and, and then she just runs away. And then the parent hears about the little girl and the, the, the girl's life of, of debauchery and, and immoral living and, and just complete rejection and even talking uh, bad about him to other people, just curses the parent. And yet, that being God, God's response to that kind of behavior is to continue to love, to continue to work for her good to continue to give opportunity to come back, pursuing and pursuing and mercy and love beyond what anything reasonable would be. I mean, you look at Hosea in the Old Testament. It's, it's just God showing 
love again and again and again despite rejection and being second place to lesser things. I mean, you, you just read that story. It's amazing, okay? God's love and patience. It's what God does over and over and over to the people of Israel all through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not full of God's wrath and punishment. There's some of that there, yes. But it's overwhelmingly full of God's love and mercy and restraint not to just finish off humanity altogether, which is what was deserved. Okay? God is truth and grace, justice and love. It's, it's a single picture of God throughout the Bible, not two different ones. Okay? And, and so you could do this. We're going to have a little fun for just a moment just to wake you up a little bit. You can do this with just about anything you want to. If you want to, you could paint God as being any way you want him to be, and that's what people do. They often come at it and go, well, what about this first? And what about when God did this? And what about this? And they'll, they'll just pick out the certain parts they want to take out of context and not the whole story and throw it at people and make him sound like an awful God. But it's, it, it comes back to, have you read the whole thing and how do you want to present him? Take it, do you take it out of its intended meaning and context? And that, that way you can do anything you want with it. And I want you to watch how this works, okay? I want you to see a concrete example. Um, think of a wholesome family movie, okay? Like, a, like Mary Poppins, okay? Um, here's the, let's play the 50th anniversary trailer from Disney of Mary Poppins, okay? So watch this and see what you think about it. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down The medicine go down Practically perfect in every way Mary Poppins, get When you're with Mary Poppins, suddenly you're in places you never dreamed of. Man, doesn't that look wonderful? Fun, holding a little birdie, you know? Flying around with her umbrella. Isn't that nice? Now, now here's the thing, though. If you wanted to, and people have, as we'll see, you could portray that to someone any way you wanted to, okay? And some of you are like, who in the world is Mary Poppins, okay? Um, but if you wanted to portray Mary Poppins as bad and evil, do you, you think that's possible? And I'm not talking about making stuff up. 
I'm talking about using clips from the actual movie, right? Just pick out parts and add your own spin on it and your own little creative music. Take actual clips and real movie parts. And you might could even just turn that whole wonderful thing into something like this. This is Scary Mary, okay? quote directly from the movie is change the music and put the clips together how they wanted to you see that and that's that's what happens sometimes okay if you just highlight them in the wrong way and add your own interpretation to how it goes together um, you, you can do that okay um and, and you can do this with anything. Like we found stuff on YouTube and we, we did, you know, so we there, you know, you're like, wow, how, how do people actually put this stuff together? But um, but I actually, I'm going to show you one more. And I actually enjoyed this one because I know everybody's so sick of this movie. And so I was like, yes, that's what I feel like these days. Okay. But but don't tell the kids, though. You may This may ruin it for them. Um, but I think they're sick of it, too. But um, here's something a little more recent for everybody that's going Mary Poppins, what is that? Okay, but let's watch something a little more recent of how you could do the same thing to make it scary. for that version of it. Let's see. I knew that would come up. Please don't say that. Um, I can't help it, though. Um, 
But see, you can do that with anything. You, you can. You can take clips out of context and highlight them in wrong ways and add your own interpretation to how it goes. But, but which is the real Frozen movie? Which is the real Scary Mary? What, what is the movie really like and really about? And, and so you ask this question, could people be doing this very same thing with the God of the Bible? Do you see how that works? Certainly. Because they don't read it. They just they reject its authority on their lives or whatever it may be or that they don't want God to, to, to be God. They want to be God or whatever it may be. So they want to reject it. So we take it and twist it so that it looks bad and we feel justified in that rejection of it. But this God of amazing love is also a God of just magnificent holiness. Okay, it, it is true there, there, there is a lot to God and his who he is and and it's all wonderful. But God is not just some nice little rabbit's foot or security blanket or prosperity genie that you just use when you want and don't have to take it seriously. OK, not a little nightlight that you can turn on when you need a warm glow. Okay, that's not that's not God. As C.S. Lewis scripted in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's speaking about Aslan, but it's a it's a reference to 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 Jesus and who he is. He he says this is the the conversation um, with Susan about Aslan as she's being told about him by uh, Mr. Beaver. Okay, <clears throat> which is interesting. I actually got an email from a pastor in Tennessee this week, and his name was Johnny Beaver. Okay, and uh, he was from Forest, Mississippi. Yeah, right. Okay, it's like interesting. Okay, anyway, sorry, but this is the the conversation. Um, says the the beaver says Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You, you see the connection? He, he's, he's not necessarily safe, but he's good. C.S. Lewis also said, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. Okay? If you want to be wet, you've got to get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Does that make sense? As you've heard the, the analogy before, the fire that warms is the fire that burns. Okay, God is like fire and He can warm or He can burn. Okay, It, it is who God is. But you can't just paint this picture of He's just evil. He's not evil. He's good. But he is powerful. And he is holy. Okay? So you, you can't take one without the other. To see this, let's look in the Old Testament at Isaiah 6. This is verses 1 through 7. We're just going to look at those very quickly as, as we begin to finish today because today's just a, it's an answering of a question and an understanding of, of where this goes. Isaiah 6, verse 1 through 7. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And here's the prophet Isaiah who wrote uh, in the Old Testament this book. And, and it, the book of Isaiah so ties the, book of, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament together and shows this same God. Jesus quoted from Isaiah more than anything else he quoted in Old Testament. Okay? All of the New Testament writers quoted more from Isaiah than any other book of the Old Testament. Like over, like near, around 400 references, more than 400 references to, to Isaiah. And, it, and in, the, in the book, in, in Isaiah, in chapters 1 through 39, it's amazing what you see because it, it points this out and shows this. It, 1 through 39 deals with Isaiah and, and his confrontation and rebuke about God's holiness. And the second half, deals with discomfort and assurance. It's amazing what you see when you read it, okay? Both are there. But here's this prophet of the, of the uh, Isaiah who was the like considered the greatest spiritual man of his generation of his time coming into the presence of God and being totally overwhelmed by it. He en encountered God as as he is, which is holy. Now, now, what does that mean? And I told you earlier, like, so as I'm reading Isaiah, and this is just a little study helps thing that, that I do, so you understand where I come up with this stuff, okay? So as I read this, it marks holy, so I go to the reference 6918, and it gives me the Hebrew word for what that is, okay? And, and so it's this word, uh, kadosh, okay? He's holy, kadosh, okay? Like the words in Hebrew, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but that's the way I want to say it because it sounds cool, okay? But, but, but I'm just reading this, and it's like, so what does holy mean? What does that mean, okay? Well, in the, in the, and it gives you a whole layout of verses where they get continuity of the meaning and what the reference is because you want to take it in context, but it, it lays out where the word's derived from and what the understanding of it is. And it, and it says things in here, um, about what holy is, okay? And so in here it, it says it designates that which is opposite of common or profane. It's as being free from the attributes of fallen humanity, okay? And so when I quote those things, this is that's where it comes from, okay? So that you have, have a little understanding of how these things get put together. But it, it, it's, it's holy, and, and how does that play out in this moment? Well, we have these angels, seraphim, okay? And, and there are different kinds of angels. These are referred to, or, or what that means is, burning or bright ones, okay? And yet they, they, and yet they are, are the, the burning or bright ones, and yet they can't handle the brilliance and radiance of God's holiness, so they have to cover their face with their wings 
in his presence, even though they're referenced as as being the bright ones, okay? And and Moses, and we won't get into why they cover their feet and they're that referring to their earthliness and feet are referenced as because you need them here and all that stuff, okay? But Moses asked to see God's face even. Okay, when you think about this and them covering their face, Moses asked to see God's face, but he didn't get to see his face. He was denied and basically as he stood there, God passed by and he got to look at his backside as he passed by because he could not, he couldn't look at his face. But but look at what these angels are saying as they're in his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Now, this was written in the Hebrew language. So further research gives you, and, and I do a lot of that online, I listen to other guys that talk about this, but this was originally written in the Hebrew language, not the King James or the New International Version or the NASB that I read, okay? The Bible is not written in those. It's originally Hebrew, okay? And when a word is repeated in Hebrew, it was done so to create emphasis on whatever it's talking about, Okay? We would use an exclamation point or we'd underline it or we, or if we wanted to emphasize something, we might say it louder or change our tone of voice uh, to emphasize what we're talking about, right? Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, um, like Tyler, okay? I could say, man, he's got some hair, Right? But in Hebrew, they would just repeat the word. So they'd go, man, he's got some hair hair. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Like, that's the way in repeating provided emphasis. Or like Smucker's, he's got the shirt on. Like, Andrew makes some big donuts. Like, those donuts are big. Okay? In Hebrew, they would just go, Andrew makes donuts donuts. Okay? And just repeat the word. Okay? If that makes sense. That's the way it was in is in the Hebrew language. And so in in... in in reading this, you see this and it says, holy, holy, holy. So to say something three times is kind of unheard of. Like that's just, they were adding as much emphasis as their language would possibly allow and maybe even going further. Only once in the Bible do you see an attribute of God repeated three times and it's here with holy, holy, holy. It's the only one. God's never said to be love, love, love or mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, most of you know holy, uh, when you think of that, you might think of pure or perfect, without fault, but, but it means more than that. You know, as we read in here, it means to be separate from all others, set apart. Uh, in there, as we read, it said, uh, designates something opposite of common or profane. Okay? It's not just profane and it's not just ordinary, it's, it's extraordinary. Okay? It's opposite of all other things, okay? And and so it's it's something inherently sacred. It's the highest benchmark. It's it's not some and here's the think about this, okay, too, because we we this gets us sometimes in our thinking. Holiness is not something God accomplished. It's who he is. Okay? You gotta make that distinction to help in understanding. Love is not something he accomplished, it's who he is. Merciful is not something he accomplished or he does, it's who he is. Okay? And so Isaiah fell apart in the presence of God's holiness. He fell apart because he stood in the presence of one 
with sin in the presence of one who was without sin, against sin, above sin, could never be brought down to sin, could never be in a relationship with sin. And he's in the presence of that. And so this man of God who was the most spiritual in his day, a spokesperson for God to the people, and, and he cast judgment on himself even in the presence of God. He said, woe is me. And this is significant as well, as significant, almost as significant as holy, holy, holy. Okay, When a prophet would begin a message uh, given by God, he, he, would, he would start it often, depending on if it was an encouraging and positive message, they would begin with the word blessed. Like when Jesus would do the Sermon on the Mountain, He'd say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. And, and he, would, he would reference it that way. Okay, and, and that was positive and encouragement. But when judgment was being given, a prophet would begin with woe. Okay? And, and so Jesus would say Himself, you'd see it in Scripture, He'd say, woe to you hypocrites. Right? So Isaiah says, woe is me in the presence of God. He could see it right away. I'm ruined. Literally, I'm lost, is what, that, what he's saying. I have no right to be here. I have no justification, no right for being in the presence of God or even to exist in this moment. I mean, he's like, woe is me. Okay? And as long as you compare yourselves to others, you can think you're doing okay, but when you compare yourself to God and you realize the difference, it can utterly destroy you. And he said, here I am. I'm this man of unclean lips living amongst unclean people. Which Jesus would say, when you think about why is he references his lips, is he saying, man, I said a curse word this morning and now I'm standing in front of God. Okay? That's not what he means. Okay, what he's referring to, when you know, you think about Jesus, when Jesus said, um, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? So it's a reference to his lips is this reference to what is in his soul and his heart about the condition of, of his heart. So when Isaiah says this, he and, and, and everyone have unclean hearts. Okay? Compared to God, we are just not okay on our own. But look at what happens. Isaiah 6 and 7. Chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Remember, this is before Jesus. Okay. He touched the coal to his lips that not even an angel could hold without tongs. Angel couldn't touch it, but he takes it and puts it to his lips, which tells us a little bit about the fact that purification and, and being taken from our condition now to being made right can sometimes be a little painful and cause, it costs something. There can be sacrifice. It comes at sacrifice. And for the payment and, and for the rest of us, it took the death on the cross of the one who was holy holy, holy, holy and merciful, just and loving, because the fire that warms is also the fire that burns, right? And, and so 
we have to understand that's who God is. And so thus, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, when you read the Bible and understand who God is, you read it with continuity and understand, yeah, he's a lion, but he, he is the lamb. He, he is a God of, of justice and, and righteousness and holiness, but he is a God of love and mercy and goodness. And without Him, we have no chance. But the fact that He gives that to us, we should be so thankful. And so to understand that, and to just bring this to a close, because that's as far as I want to go today, but, but, but hopefully maybe today you realize you're undone and you're not holy. And, and so you're not able to have a relationship with God in that state if you've not dealt with and had Jesus deal with your unclean heart and you've not turned from your sin and your unholiness and turned to this God. Jesus died for you so you could be forgiven and live a new and clean life before God. Not perfect. Just that Jesus would take the wrath for that that was deserved for us he would take that upon himself so that we could live and become more and more like Jesus. Not so that sin could abound in our lives because we're forgiven, but that so we would have the opportunity to be holy as he is holy. So maybe that's a place you're at today would, that you would just turn to him and your unholiness to see that God really is good and you would just fall in love with Him and want to just embrace the love He has for you. So as Tyler comes and plays and we, we, we close out, if that's you, maybe you would just have that conversation with God right now. Um, I just ask for heads to be bowed and eyes closed. If you already know Christ, you already have His righteousness applied to you because of what He did on the cross for you. Maybe you would pray for others. Maybe you would just thank Him one more time. Maybe you would just understand and make a take a step of saying, I need to continue to pursue God the way He has pursued me. Maybe you've stepped back from Him. Maybe there's sin that has creeped back in and that is not who God made you to be. Maybe you would just, in being in, in His presence, you would just say, Man, either I once was unclean or maybe you now, you're in that state now, but, but you see that He can make you new. He can give you a clean start. He can refresh you. He can save you from your sin. Maybe you still have questions you want to explore. I hope you see this is a safe place to do that. And so, Father, right now, I just pray that each person here would see you for who you truly are, that you would open hearts and minds to your word, to your revelation of who you are. That in the midst of our questions and the things we don't understand, we would know that you are God and we would have assurance of who we are in you. You've provided enough for that for us. There should be no doubt of who you are. 
God, I pray that even in a world that twists who you are to try to get people to reject you, that we would not be afraid to engage with people and answer their questions and try to find answers to things we don't know and not be afraid of those things, but welcome it. To acknowledge we have questions of our own, even though we know there is a God and He is the God of the Bible and His name is Jesus. So Father, may we just step out of our comfort zones and help people and, and walk together. Yes, as brothers and sisters in Christ, but Father, as people who want to reach out to those who are too close to the fire, who are in danger of, of being destroyed by their sin. Father, for the one here that may be turning their life over to You right now and understanding who You are, would You just help them to to understand that maybe the best they know how right now they just give themselves to you that they would turn from themselves to your son Jesus that they would accept you as God and begin to walk with you and follow you that they would understand you died on the cross in their place for their sin that they could have a relationship with you that is amazing and is really who they were created to be so, Father, thank you. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.